The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. So let's pray together. So Lord, here we come again to your word to see your design for this for this covenant called marriage. Your design for male and female to come together. And Lord, I pray for grace. Lord, I know that this text for some is is beautiful and encouraging and sweet. And for others, that that beauty just reminds them of the, the pain of loss or the brokenness that they've experienced. And so, Lord, you know what each one in this room needs. Encouragement, exhortation, comfort, conviction. And Lord, I praise you that I am not the one able or responsible to meet all those needs, but you are through your word and by the power of your spirit. So help us as a people as we dive in here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when it comes to this uh, design for marriage that we're going to see so clearly today, what's clear in our, our world is that the world is in complete rebellion when it comes to this design. Our culture is in complete rebellion when it comes to this design. There's no other way to say it. That's what it is. If Jesus is king, if God is king, then we're a culture and a, and a people in general in, in rebellion to his design. Right a while back, our nation made it legal for two men or two women to declare themselves married in the eyes of the state. That's rebellion, right? That's calling evil what, or calling good what God calls evil. We want to name that and, and say it, not be afraid to be clear. We should note in these first two chapters of Genesis that we've seen, even in our own nation, uh, a legalization of abortion and same-sex unions, which are in direct opposition to God's good design of males and females made in the image of God. And, and I hope that as we see that happening around us, that it, it breaks our hearts. It should, it should break our hearts to see rebellion against the king. And yet, while it breaks our hearts, we should feel zero sense of panic. We should feel zero sense of panic. Why do I say that? Because what our government declares legal or not does not threaten our God's designs or plans even a little bit. Right? King Jesus was not waiting with bated breath to hear the Supreme Court decision. <laughs> it wasn't hitting refresh on <laughs> his browser. What's going to happen? Marriage is still what God says it is because he's God. Because he, he created all these things. All those decisions belong to him. And so rather than have a posture of panic or outrage or righteous anger that turns into unrighteous anger, what should the church do. And I want to make a case to you this morning that it should speak beauty into the rebellion. It should speak beauty into the rebellion. It should hold up God's design for marriage as both final 
and show how God's design for marriage leads to flourishing. Isn't it a sweet thing as a Christian? We don't have to choose. We don't say, do this because you should do it. We say, do this because this is an invitation from your Creator into the kind of life that He says will bring about the most flourishing and the most glory for Him. The church does that by speaking the truth from the Word, and it does that by showing the truth in the world. And just at the very beginning here, just a note to those of you, I mean, I, I, I know you and I love you, a note to those of you who are, are single, and maybe you wish you weren't. A note to those of you who have been through hard situations that have ended in divorce, or a note to those of you who are currently in marriages that feel impossible. A note to those of you who have recently lost your spouse. I know these kinds of sermons can be really painful. And I pray by the end that you'll be encouraged to see how much your ultimate bridegroom, Jesus Christ, cares for you. How much He loves you. So today together, I want us to taste the beauty of this design and have our hearts freshly long to see this kind of beauty displayed in our marriages to the world for the sake of King Jesus. So let's dive in. First, let's look at the the problem that's presented in this text. So remember last week, Pastor Daniel helped us zoom in on this real historical place called Eden where a real man was formed to dwell in God's presence. Again, God's people in God's place enjoying God's presence. We're going to keep saying that because you're going to keep seeing it. And this man was given the responsibilities to work and to keep the garden. Daniel helpfully pointed out last week that the next time these words show up together are with the priests in the temple so that we get this idea of the garden as a kind of sacred place, a kind of temple space in the world where the man is commanded to tend to and guard the garden, to to cultivate, in other words, tend, all that's good, right? See all this good? Keep cultivating it. Make it better. Make it sweeter in this place. And then to guard, to keep anything not good out of it. He is the royal priest to reflect God's presence and serve in God's place. And if he will simply obey this calling and this command to not eat of just one tree, right, he can live in this paradise with God forever. What a good gift that would be. And yet, even all that goodness in the midst of this beautiful creation and garden, there's something missing, right? There's something missing. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So what's what's the problem here? What's the, the thing to be solved in this moment? Well, man's alone, and it's not good. Well, why? We want to connect Genesis 2 back to Genesis 1, and what we realize is man can't accomplish the task alone physically to multiply and fill the earth. Man can't do that alone. Man will need help to cultivate this garden and to guard it. Man is made in God's image to be relational, and right now man is alone and needs someone to be in relationship with. This is a lack 
a gap for the mission and for relationship. So God says that He needs to make a helper fit for Him. This is the idea of a counterpart that will come alongside in the work and the mission, a partner in this calling to work and protect, to image and reflect. So this just has a few quick implications. We believe here, because of this text and others in the Bible, that men are called to take leadership in the cultivating of good and the protecting against evil in homes and at church. But this verse protects any church or any home from a kind of deeming of women as second-class citizens in the actual work of God that needs to happen for His glory to spread. It is not good that man should be alone. It's not good. What does that mean? It means it's bad. It would be a bad thing if it was just man. That means it's good to have a helper. Just to say... One of the implications is that men, you need your wives to help you. You need them to help you. Women, your husbands can't do it without you. You need your perspective in partnership. Second, God makes a helper fit for man. The beauty of this fit, as we're going to see in a second, is that there's so much in common. Made in the image of God. Humans, not animals. But also physical, emotional differences. Different bodies the Lord gives. Different hormones that He gives them. These similarities point to the unity and diversity of our triune God and the intimate love of the Trinity expressed on the ground in creation. The mission needs this helper and the relationship needs this helper so profoundly the same and so perfectly different in his design. And third, if you're single in this room, you don't have a husband or wife right now, even though this passage is about marriage, it's still true that it's not good for man to be alone. And so the rest of you, it's our job, church, to draw those who don't have a husband or wife into the life of our church in such a way that they're not alone. In fact, the New Testament says singleness is a gift. And so some of you have the gift of singleness, but church, it's our job to make sure our singles are not alone. The problem here, then, is that man is alone in the mission and alone in relationship, and only God can fix that problem. So that's the problem, and then we get this, I'm calling the parade, the parade of animals. Look at verses 19 to 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So what in the world is going on here? And why, why even though this happened, why is it included in the Bible? What are we supposed to see? Uh, it's kind of fun to imagine a scene. You know, I don't know where Adam was in the garden, but he's, he's standing there, or maybe he's sitting there, and just all these animals coming in front of them, and he's, he's naming them, right? If you're indecisive, it feels like that could have taken forever. Right? It's like the eternal name of this animal. It feels like a lot's at stake. But he's naming them. 
right? The Lord had formed these animals, and he brings them all before the man. The man names all of them, but he doesn't, he doesn't find his helper. So I think there's at least two things we're supposed to see here. Number one, and not to be missed, is man has authority, dominion over all these animals. He names them. That, that's the sign. Like, you have the authority to name them. You're, you're over them in this way. This is part of the dominion man was given in chapter 1, and we see it carried out here. And two, I think we're just supposed to see again, humans aren't animals. And animals aren't humans. Right? Animals can't think and process the way that humans can. They can't carry out the mission of God. They can't relate enough to other humans to be helpers fit for them. No matter how much you love your pet, it's not a human, especially if it's a cat. (laughs) You remember by now the, the story of Stone and his grandma and the horse, right? And this is just another paradigm for that. Human beings are in a separate class. They have more worth than animals. They have dominion. And an animal can't be a helper to a human. It's not going to work. Kids, just to drive the point home to you, you can look and check this out right now. Your parents aren't animals, are they? Right? No kid in this room is going to grow up and marry an animal. Why? Because they're not a fit companion. They're not human. The partnership won't work for the mission or for the relationship. So God parades these animals before Adam, and he names them, but he doesn't find his helper. He needs something different. Point number three, the prescription. So where is this helper going to come from? Look at verses 21 to 22. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So God puts Adam under some sort of general anesthesia here, and he puts him to sleep to do surgery. While Adam is sleeping, God opens him up, And he takes out one of his ribs and he closes him back up. Then God takes that rib from the man, from his very nature, and forms it into a woman. And then he brings this woman to the man. The same language for what he did with the animals. He he puts them in front of the man. Now he says, here's this woman. And he puts her in front of the man. Notice all this is God's divine Intention. He diagnoses the problem. He puts Adam under. He opens Adam up. He takes the rib out. He forms it into a woman. He brings her to the man. Where will this counterpart be found? That's the question. Well, it needs to be created from the man. It needs to be created from the very flesh of the man. His helper has to be his very nature. So God takes that rib from the man and fashions it into a human being, one that is profoundly similar similar to him and yet perfectly different in its composition of hormones and anatomy and dispositions. God does that. This is the prescription. This is the one that will be the partner in the mission and relationship. This is the one that will be the perfect complement to man. And when we put Genesis 2 together with Genesis 1... 
the purpose and the pattern is clear. How will man spread the divine image of God and multiply to fill the earth? With a man and woman relating personally and multiplying physically. Perfect compliments in all the ways needed to not be alone in this world emotionally and perfect compliments physically and anatomically to be able to multiply the divine image. Keep saying both of those things, the emotions and the body. So we're embodied souls. And they're working together. This means, this is true, this means the world and all its ideas it has about marriage and men and women are faulty. They won't work. But they won't work anatomically. They won't work emotionally. They, they just don't work. This is God's design for human flourishing and distortions will ultimately lead to human floundering and the slow unraveling of the societies that embrace that. Kids, the world has all sorts of ideas about marriage. Right? You, you've heard things. You've seen things. But if God created us and designed us, then following His plan will lead to the most happiness for humans and the most glory for Him. That's what we want. And we don't have to choose. And so we hold to God's ideas because we want the world to flourish and God to get glory. We don't shake our fist in a kind of angry outrage. We speak the beauty of God's design with clarity and compassion. We show the beauty of God's design in our marriages. We live in committed marriages where the world would see husbands that know they need their wives, that cherish their wives, and wives that are eager to partner and help their husband for God's purposes. We need marriages where the complementary nature of God's design is seen for all the beauty its creator intended. Marriages are in reach and they're outreach to the world. We need Christian singles living celibate lives to point to the goodness of God's design for marriage. Like, I'm single. How can I point to God's good design for marriage? Live a happy, (laughs) sanctified life of celibacy to the glory of God. And you point to the goodness of God's design for marriage. Point number something. I lost track. Verse 23, the poem. So now we're going to find out how did Adam feel about this new arrangement, right? What was Adam feeling in this moment where the woman is presented to him? Look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God brings the woman to the man like he brought the animals, but the man's response is different. He recognizes immediately, this is my counterpart. This is my partner. This is one that is like me, but different in the best kind of ways possible. Look at her. She's like me, and she's not like me. This is awesome, right? That's what's going through his mind. Those animals, they weren't even close. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, yeah, that'll work, God. That will work. That's what I've been looking for and waiting for. She's it. 
right? My golden retriever was awesome, but this woman is perfect, right? She's my partner for ministry in this place. She's my partner to relate to, to share my fears and my joys with. She's my compliment. She's stunning and beautiful. I can't take my eyes off of her. She's the one I can fill this earth with. Our love will relationally and physically and anatomically fulfill God's call to us. I want her help in all this work. I need her help in all this work. I want to protect her. I want to lay my life down for her, and I've just seen her. That's what's going on in this moment. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Adam is filled with a joy that makes him sing the first song. Write the first poem. Notice he names her woman, which in Hebrew is Isha, because she was taken out of man, which is Ish. He's naming her after himself. So much like him in the best ways and just different in the best ways. Yes, Adam in this naming of his wife has authority in this marriage. We see this later in the New Testament and here again in this naming. But I think we can see here he has no intentions to use his authority for harm. Right? He, he wants to serve her, care for her, protect her, partner with her, fill, fulfill the mission of God with her. He names her after himself. Our culture has tried to convince us as men that women are to be used as objects. That's what it's doing. That's what the culture is doing. It's what it wants to convince you of. And this bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, is clearly the opposite of all that. This is the deepest cherishing and valuing that we could imagine. If the culture has convinced you that a man should be tough and stuff all your emotions in here and objectify women, this man writes the first poem and sings the first song when he sees his wife. Right? He's not distracted by the ads or distracted by the computer and stuffing all his emotions. He's tough, right? He doesn't share any of that. He's singing a song and writing a poem to his wife. That's true manhood. That's what it looks like to be a faithful husband. Oh, for marriages where a man's energy and emotions and expressions are aimed with this kind of deep cherishing and treasuring and enjoyment and partnership with his wife. Don't you want this? Wouldn't this be a beautiful thing for the world to see? Two quick notes. I know we're not exactly here perfectly anymore. Genesis 3 is next week. It's kind of the killjoy after this sermon, right? Because the world is broken and it's beat up and you're sitting here and as as a man, maybe I say that and you just feel like, I can't do that. I I got no hope to do that. I don't even know how to write music. <laughs> Not good with poems. <laughs> Putting a burden on me I can't bear. And what I want to do is just call you as a husband to lean in and seek to be faithful in this. However it is that, that you do it, does your wife know she's cherished? In the good times and the bad times, love your wife. See your wife like this. See her like this. Ask God for grace to see her like this. Cherish her. 
partner with her. Walk away from the lustful, objectifying air we breathe and don't bring it into your homes. And I know for some of you men, you didn't have any kind of example of this. Like you just hear me talking, you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Thanks for admitting that. Get help. Get help from someone else and say, we need your help. I don't, I don't get how to do this. I don't know how to cherish my wife. I don't know how to let her know she's cherished. I love her. I don't know how to say it. I've got all this sin. Our marriage is broken. I, I have been bringing it in. I need help. Like that's what the church is for. Right? This foundation of grace that makes it safe to say, I don't get it. Man, the Bible holds this thing up and I have no idea how to do it. That's what the family of God is for. So to reach out to someone, get help. We're eager to walk in this with you. And second, note, I know, because I've sat with many of you, that there are excruciating marriages in this room. And I know that there are single moms in this room. And I know that there's shame in this room with marriages that ended badly. I know that there's all sorts of Genesis 3 ugliness. I just want to say to you that while this is the ideal, this is the beautiful picture held up, that God grants grace to help us endure hard marriages. God grants grace for whatever sins we've committed and whatever sins have been committed against us. And God gives us grace for single mamas for the task at hand to love those kids that they would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He will provide all you need in your failing, in your suffering, in your sadness, in the brokenness. There's grace enough for all the things that are less than ideal. And God gives us all each other to walk down these hard roads together. Number five, the promise, verses 24 to 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So now God has completed this design. He's brought them together for the first wedding. God tells them how it's going to work in the future as this keeps happening. As marriages continue to multiply children, those children will grow up and do what? They will leave. Right? They'll leave their families and they'll hold fast to their wife. Husbands will hold fast to their wife and the wife will leave and hold fast to her husband. And, and what will happen? Right? They'll become one flesh. Right? The two become one, again showing off and reflecting this profound unity and diversity of Trinitarian love. That's the miracle that's happening here. And if the two become one, then as is said at most weddings, what God has joined together in His divine design, man should not separate. This is pointing to a covenant. A covenant. This is a committed relationship in the most profound way. Again, our culture has a sentiment of, how do I know if my spouse is still the one? What if I made a mistake? And, and in our Christian marriages, I don't think we'd use that language. But if kind of in your thoughts, you're always looking for the escape hatch, 
for your spouse's annoyances, maybe it's beginning to, to get in there. Now, I'm, not, I'm not talking about abuse and adultery. We all know that those are cases that need to be thought through with care and love and time and patience. But I'm talking about just the, the brokenness, the general brokenness in marriages. Our world would call you to just leave. Right? To, to just run away. We call you to kind of a, a Disney version of love. So let me just say this. How do you know your spouse is the one? You know your spouse is the one because you're married to them. That, that's how you know today <laughs> that your spouse is the one. If you're married to them, that's the one. It's <laughs> the one God has for you. The two become one emotionally, and in this partnership together, this is embodied in becoming one physically as an expression of the profound love that is shared. Right? We, we see that. They were naked and not ashamed. What, what does that mean? Why tell us they're naked and not ashamed? Got nothing for the kids here, parents. So I think this has the idea of being fully known and fully loved. I say the idea behind this. They saw each other completely, physically, emotionally, again, embodied souls. There was a commitment in covenant that made this first marriage a safe place to be fully known and fully loved. In every way, there was a profound covenant with each other in their partnership to the call to obey God and live in fellowship and obedience to Him that made this marriage a sweet place to know each other to know God together, to have Him know them, and to know the full love of God in one another. This is that idea of shalom again, fully known, fully loved, a place where they could be naked and not ashamed, caught up in this holistic, beautiful design of God's love and purpose. And again, don't we want this for our marriages, fully known and fully loved? Now, we've got all this sin to deal with. Right? We're, we're not here where there's not sin yet. But oh, there's grace. Right? Jesus has purchased us by his blood. He's given us grace for our sins. He's put his Holy Spirit in us. There's grace to move back towards this. Again, the world doesn't have categories for covenant or this kind of commitment. It doesn't have categories for this kind of valuing and cherishing of each other in partnership and covenant. Instead, it has Disney dreams of a flimsy kind of love based on everything but covenant. Right? You don't see much covenant in Disney movies, do you? Right? Instead, it promotes a, a culture of loving whoever you love, no matter what gender they are. Or love whoever you love for at least a little while until you love someone else more later. It promotes a culture of one-night stands and Pornography and using other people for momentary pleasure, not covenanting together for deep, lifelong joy. I mean, just think of the commercials you see. And think of the, the movies coming out. And think of every other thing that's trying to point to male and female interactions in our world. There's, there's none of this. In this culture of self-expression and instant gratification is coming up short. It's coming up short. 
But it's leading to broken relationships and loneliness and the feeling of being used and not cherished. It's not delivering on its promises. You can look up statistics outside of Christianity and find the, the loneliest, saddest, most depressed, most anxious generation with the highest rates of everything. Right? It's, it's not delivering on its promise. And what does that mean? It means in the midst of cultural insanity when it comes to these things, the church is here for a reason. That The church has such an opportunity to speak and show the beauty of God's design and its lasting good for human flourishing and God's glory. The church has an opportunity to speak with clarity about what God says and with compassion to those who have not walked in it. I keep saying this to you, but we were made for this day. Don't you see that from Genesis 1 and 2 already? That we were made for this day to to call the world out of darkness and into the light of God's design. And as we do that, we go, we're sinners too. We needed grace too. We needed forgiveness too. But but come on into true joy. Come on into true happiness. Come on into true life. And right now, if you know that you failed in these areas of marriage, you hear these lists of things I'm saying, you go, yeah, I've been doing that myself. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Say you're sorry to your spouse and get back up and walk in grace again. Isn't repentance beautiful? (laughs) Like, that's it. (laughs) That's really it because of Jesus. All right, finally, the pointer can't end this sermon without telling you what all this is pointing to. So Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. If you want to turn there, you can. Otherwise, you can, just, you can just listen. Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God created this beautiful covenant of marriage where a man lays down his life and cherishes his wife as a picture of the love of Christ for the church. Isn't that amazing? This was the plan all that time ago. Do you know a man who left the infinite delights of his father and came to hold fast to his bride? Do you know him? It's the God-man. It's Jesus Christ. Do you know one who paid for all of our sins by living a perfect life, dying a death for us on a cross that we could know we are fully known and fully loved in perfect covenant love? Yes, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our marriages point to the love of Christ for the church. Not perfectly, but really they're a living parable to the world of the way our Savior loves us. What a privilege, right? What a, what a challenge, what an accountability, what a responsibility to be caught up in this story. So more is at stake in our marriages than only our earthly happiness. Instead, a right and true picture of the gospel, the sacrificial love of Christ to leave his father and win his bride and love her and cherish her and protect her and care for her, The picture of the church's glad partnership in his work in response to his love is meant to be seen in our marriages. And even though more is at stake in our marriages than our earthly happiness, 
if we work towards this design, then we will be happy. Not perfectly because of Genesis 3, but truly happy, and he will be glorified. Singles, those hurting, those in hard marriages, those who have lost your spouse, this marriage text in Genesis 2 is encouraging to all of us because this is a picture of the love of Christ, our perfect bridegroom for the church, for you and for me. So this is pointing to. This is his covenant commitment to us. Jesus left his father to hold fast to his bride. Praise God. Jesus had his side pierced to create the church, create his bride. Praise God. And Jesus paid the price for our sins, and he rejoices over us with loud singing. (laughs) He does that for us, for the church. Jesus is this perfect bridegroom who never leaves us or forsakes us. So church, we get the chance to speak beauty into the rebellion of the world, that they would see and know the love of Christ for the church, that they'd be compelled to walk in the beautiful design of God and his creation of marriage, and even more so that they'd see in us and then beyond us and turn and repent and walk in the beautiful covenant with God and his redemption of his bride, us, the church. So let's pray together. So let me do this now. Let me just ask you a few questions as we move towards closing for you to talk to the Lord about. First, if you're here and you've not yet trusted in the great bridegroom Jesus who left his father to pay for your sins and bring you into his covenant, would you right now, um, would you right now receive him? Would you lay down your rebellion and lay down your anxious striving for other ways of happiness and joy and salvation? And would you say, say, yes, Lord, I need you. I trust you. Be my perfect bridegroom. Be my savior. Be my friend. And if you're here and you're single or you're in an impossible marriage, what seems impossible, you just lost your spouse, you've got all sorts of brokenness attached to this that hurts, would you right now take all your pains and all your fears and all your joys to the cross and ask, ask your bridegroom, Jesus Christ, to come and be a very present help in your time of need? Ask him to help you let go of shame, bitterness, and anger and to walk forward in his grace and mercy. If you're here and you're married, would you ask God for grace to be a husband that cherishes and treasures and partners with his bride like this? the world would see the love of Christ for the church, imperfectly but really in you. And if you're a wife, would you ask for grace to gladly come alongside your husband in this great mission of God and this partnership for the glory of his name to reflect his image to the world. And for husbands and wives, right now would be a great time to just confess 
confess your sins. Confess the ways that you've not been faithful, not been kind, not been for your spouse. And ask the Lord to forgive you and give you help to make restoration with your spouse. Would you all pray now in this moment that as the Lord works in our singleness and in our marriages, that it would point to the world of the sufficiency of Jesus and the good news of a gospel of a God who left his Father's side, was pierced for our transgressions, and keeps us by his covenant love. Would you pray that our marriages and our singleness would point to the sufficiency of Jesus, that people would see beyond us to Him, that we would speak and show beauty to a world in rebellion. So Lord, we know we're not in Genesis 2 anymore. We live in a Genesis 3 world and I know that there's all sorts of burdens and pain and sin and shame in this room. But you came and lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved as I, and rose again and conquered death so that we would receive forgiveness for our sins and we would have your righteousness imputed to us so that we are forgiven for our sins and our shame is covered by your righteousness. And Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit so that like we sang earlier, there is your presence and your power for you to turn things around by the power of your Spirit to convict us and comfort us and exhort us and encourage us. So Lord, we are asking you to turn around hearts, turn around situations by your grace, for your glory, Lord. We pray all these things as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.